Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietti. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcasts.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcasts.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. So we have the world's oldest living UFO researcher, Jim Mosley, with us. Are you the world's oldest living UFO researcher? Tell me. Well, I feel that I am, yes, uh, <laughs> at times especially, but... Uh, uh, the only thing I can say in all due modesty that I do at least have the world's oldest UFO magazine because we are now in our 56th year and that's uh, quite a while. Uh, we know that because the new issue that's coming out is uh, volume uh, 56, number 10. And uh, so we started back in 1954 and that's uh, a record that uh, I hope I can be proud of or something well since you were there from the very beginning in terms of following a lot of the ufo lore not too many years seven years after the kenneth arnold era okay in the mid 60s lots of stuff was going on and you had a magazine then it was the other incarnation of saucer smear called saucer news that's right superficially this was a serious publication well so is this one but it's got a, a whole different format. Uh, in the early days, I had articles by contributors that were known in the field, and uh, I had a much greater length, something about uh, 24 pages, perhaps. And now it's a, a newsletter format, a short articles. The whole thing is written by me, except the letters to the editor, which obviously is written by other people. So it's a different format, but it's the same old me. Uh, weird sense of humor, but underneath it all, I am seriously trying to get to the bottom of the UFO mystery, and uh, as we'll get back to a little bit further on, I think one of the most fascinating people that I ever met in all these years is David Huggins, simply because his experiences are unique, and he is a unique person. If we knew exactly what is causing these experiences of his, I think we would be a big step forward to solving the UFO mystery, which, as we all know, has not been solved yet and may not be solved for quite some time. David, before we progress into the nature of your experiences, we wanted to focus on a couple other things, but we're happy to have you aboard, David. Well, thank you. And Jim was certainly extolling the benefits and the information that you had to provide. And before we do, and you are a loyal reader, of course, of Saucer Smear, uh-huh. as you were telling us, but way back when, when Saucer Smear was in this other semi-more professional incarnation in terms of the way it was published and everything, there were lots of UFO cases that Jim spent a lot of time writing about, and one involved police officer Lani Zamora, the Socorro, New Mexico case, and we learned that Zamora died. Now, what can you tell us? What do you remember, Jim, about the Sakaro case? Well, let me uh, start this way. Instead of giving all the details at the beginning, I was uh, fortunate enough in the year uh, 1996, which was one year before the 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident, which was also in New Mexico, 
Socorro occurred back in 1964, and I read about it and published it. But in uh, 1996, uh, Tim Beckley was giving a uh, saucer convention up in uh, Denver or nearby, and I drove from there down into New Mexico. I was on the highway on my way to Roswell in 1996, and I had to go right through Socorro, which is where Professor Charles Moore lives. And that's another long story, but he was intimately connected, I believe, with the Roswell incident. I was more interested in Roswell than Socorro, although Socorro, in its own way, is even more fascinating of the two. I was lucky enough to uh, meet with this uh, Professor Charles Moore, at his home in Socorro, he was a professor at the Technical University there, and he was also involved earlier in his career with something called Project Mogul, which again is off the subject. Anyway, he was a charming man, and since he lived right in Socorro, he invited me to go with him to the exact landing spot, which had been on the desert near the town of Socorro back in the year 1964. And there was a bit of an altitude there. I would think they were up around four or 5,000 feet. And since I smoked like a furnace or some such thing, I was not happy to climb around. Uh, it wasn't hilly, really, but it was at something of an altitude. Anyway, we got to the exact spot where fans of the Socorro incident had made a little circle of stones uh, to mark the place on the desert. And uh, he... Uh, I don't remember, of course, after all these years, just uh, what all he said, but we went over, no doubt, some of the theories about what the Socorro incident might have uh, involved, and uh, uh, there were several theories uh, mentioned. One would have been a theory uh, brought up by the late uh, skeptic uh, Phil Class. He had a rather strange and ridiculous opinion uh, that it was a hoax that had been sponsored by the mayor of the town because of the fact that, that the mayor owned property in or near that exact spot and he expected and hoped that this widely publicized UFO incident would increase the value of his property and make Socorro into a tourist attraction and uh, do a lot of financial good for the town. The reason that that's Amusing is that nothing whatsoever like that happened. Uh, as I say, I was there for more than 30 years after the incident occurred, and the, the town of Socorro was as dead and dusty and out of the way nothing as it had been in the beginning. So obviously uh, that theory didn't work, and I believe it was nonsense anyway on the part of class, Philip Class. Other than that, nobody ever mentioned a hoax because this was a, a very noisy, complex uh, craft seen in broad daylight. Uh, there were two little men in coveralls that were seen next to the craft. There was a roaring noise, uh, quite unlike most UFOs, that was associated with the craft. There was a mystic symbol or a strange symbol of some kind on the side of the craft, and as I say, a great deal of noise involved, uh, much different from most saucer cases. But remember, again, this is all in uh, broad daylight. And no one other than the theory that I just mentioned uh, had anything to say about a hoax 
But now, bringing it up to date, as some of us know, there's a new fellow on the Internet named Anthony Bregalia, and he claims to have talked to a professor at uh, one of the uh, universities in uh, New Mexico, it may be the same one, who uh, remembers as an old man now uh, the fact that the uh, Sakaro incident was known at the time to be a hoax by students uh, who were bored and didn't like the police and uh, didn't like Lonnie Zamora in particular for some reason that hasn't been established yet and so that this was uh, a student hoax to show their abilities uh, since they were technical students uh, it might be conceivable but Bregalia has not yet uh, brought out any details about that and uh, I don't really think he can because I believe it's a rather ridiculous uh, idea uh, one of my reasons for going into all of this detail is to tell you, of course, we talked a lot about Roswell, too, but in the course of the afternoon, we talked about the Socorro incident, and I remember distinctly Professor Moore, who, as I say, moved in the same academic circles in New Mexico that that university was involved in. Uh, he told me very uh, clearly that if it wasn't a surveyor craft, uh, then he didn't know what it was, and at no time did he say that he had heard anything about it being a hoax by students, and I'm sure that in that length of time, if there was such a rumor, he would have had to have heard it and would have no reason not to uh, mention it. So, uh, again, sort of wrapping it up, uh, the incident is an unknown. It wasn't a surveyor, and it wasn't a, a hoax, and whether it's a spaceship or not, we certainly don't know, but uh, it has not been solved. And it's an interesting uh, coincidence that Zamora would happen to die just at the time where his case, uh, which was so famous for so many years, would be uh, rehashed uh, just during this uh, very recent period of the last few weeks. And uh, I never met uh, Zamora, because uh, on that same trip, I called him on the phone. He was listed. And he was polite, but he had gotten tired after all that time of talking to people about this, and you could hardly blame him, and so he would not see me. He was featured quite recently, as you probably know, Gene, on UFO Hunters, and uh, they did manage to get him to, to appear in person on the show. I assume that they paid him. And oddly enough... Actually, I don't I, think they pay anybody anything to appear on that show. Well, all right, uh, but uh, for some reason they did get uh, Zamora, whereas other people, including myself, were not able to see him in recent years. The odd thing about the show was that the three most important and interesting things about the incident that he had witnessed were not mentioned, and I have no idea why that was, and that was the two little men in coveralls, the strange symbol on the side of the craft and the great amount of noise that the craft made. I saw the show and uh, none of those outstanding and unusual characteristics were mentioned and I have no idea why. Uh, and I thought that was an important failing on the part of the people that were doing uh, UFO hunters. I'll tell you what, and, we can go chapter and verse as to the failings of the UFO hunters show. And <laughs> maybe this is not the time to do it.
Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us. But we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Jim Mosley. He is editor, publisher, chief cook and bottle washer, and floor sweeper of Saucer Smear. We also have David Huggins, who is featured in a book called Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. That comes from Patrick Weege's publishing company, Anomalous Books. And we'll get into now the inner details of what happened to David Huggins. How did you, Jim, meet David? Well, I was asking him about that the other day because I couldn't remember. I think the first time that we actually met was at one of the uh, UFO conventions that take place twice a year near Trenton, New Jersey, put on by a fellow named Pat Marcatilio, who I'm sure you've heard of. And uh, David was there to speak and to display his art, and I think that's where we met. Is that right, David? Yeah, yes, it is. And I had heard of David previously, mainly by reading about him in a treatise uh, written by a... A psychiatrist, I believe, a lady psychiatrist named Irina Labow, L-A-I-B-O-W, who was briefly in the saucer field. I don't know if she wrote a book or not, but she sponsored uh, a few conventions. Uh, 
quite a few years ago, and she had a short write-up about Huggins, and uh, I was interested to meet him. Actually, he uh, lives very near where I used to live. He lived in Hoboken. I lived uh, a little bit further up the river, you might say, in uh, around uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is just a few miles away. So eventually, when we got to know each other, we met several times, and uh, by that time, I was living down here in uh, Key West, but I, I came up to New Jersey a couple of times a year, and uh, David and I would eat in a very nice German restaurant there in Hoboken, and uh, I have very uh, pleasant uh, memories of our meetings because he is a, a pleasant, as normal a guy as any of us are. I don't suppose anybody except Eugene is completely normal. But Well, actually, uh, I defer to David Biedney. <laughs> I don't think so. Professor Biedney. Now, by the way, because we have two Davids on the show, we will call him Professor Biedney or something. And then we have David Huggins. I don't know how. Let's just call him something. All right. Okay, we'll call him something. So something, something refers yeah, to David Biedney, and David refers to David Huggins. How's that work? That works. That was good to me. I didn't get that. What are we going to call uh, Biedney? <laughs> Biedney. Let's just call me Biedney. How about call me Biedney instead of something? I don't like being right. objectified like that. Oh, okay, let's do Biedney. All right. All right, that sounds fine. By the way, this is now going to spread through the blogosphere that we fought over what to call David Biedney. There you go. Whatever. So it's not going let's, to be on the cutting room floor this segment. Let's get right into questions here. So David, David yeah. Huggins. The yeah. title of the book that's been put out about your artwork is Love in an Alien Purgatory. Now, purgatory is an interesting choice of a word there. Um, yeah. It, 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 it kind of goes in contrast in some ways to the way the story seems to play out. So how did you, did you choose that title? No, it wasn't me. You can't blame that title on me. You know, uh, you was you've very hit, upset with the title, actually. But the, the thing is, it is a title that does not apply properly. And David and I uh, talked about it on the phone two or three times, and uh, we we tried to get the anomalous uh, people to change it uh, uh, more or less at the last minute, and they wouldn't do that. Purgatory is a word that refers to the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine that there is a realm between heaven and hell in which your soul is kept for an indefinite length of time while uh, the choice is made as to which place to send you. I may not be explaining that perfectly, but it is a re religiously uh, connotation type of word, and uh, that and other reasons would uh, make it very questionable that that would be the right word to use, and yet it was used. Okay, forgetting the title. Mr. Huggins, okay. David. Yes. When did strange things start happening in your life? Uh, when I was about eight years old. Uh, I was living on a farm in Georgia as a kid, and uh, there was one day I was playing behind our barn, and I heard someone say, David, look behind you. And I turned around. And there was this little hairy guy with these large glowing eyes coming out of the woods straight toward me. And I was really just fastened by those eyes. I couldn't move. And then suddenly they let me go, if you will. And I ran uh, back to the barn and started heading toward the house. And I happened to look behind me 
And the little hairy guy had turned and was walking now back into the woods. And uh, that's where it started. David, that's quick question. Quick, quick question for you. Um, did you have any siblings? Yes, I have a son. Siblings as in um, uh, brothers or sisters? Uh, yes, I had a brother and two sisters. Okay. So... Um, as far as I know, they never had experiences. Of any sort? Of any sort. They have never mentioned anything to me. Okay, but you've specifically asked them. Have you asked them if they ever, besides, you know, the kinds of direct experiences you're talking about, is there anything where, where they would have seen, for example, you walk out of the house at a weird time of the night, or did they ever see anything anomalous at all when these things were going on? No, as far as I know, no one has ever mentioned anything to me. It got to a point where I was telling my mother, my father, my grandmother, my grandfather that I was seeing these strange things, and they just kept choking it up as a wild imagination of a little boy. Hmm. And uh, one day I ran to the house, and there's this real tall guy out by the barn. And uh, my father went out to the barn. He came back very upset, and I got a whipping like you would not believe. And then about two days later, I... Uh, right, could you explain see- this to me, please, David? Yes. Why did you get the whipping? Because your dad thought you were lying? Yes, and I was making things up. And uh, anyway, about a day later, I see the woman. She's with a couple of the little grays. And I remember saying to her, my mom and dad don't believe I see you. I got a whipping. And she didn't like hearing that. I could just tell by the way. I just knew she didn't like it. And then she just looked right at me and she said, then don't say anything. And after that, I never did. Now, this is when you had that interaction. This is after your initial meeting, right? In the book, there's a pretty well uh, illustrated rendition of the very first meeting you say you had with this uh with this female creature correct right now in in the book david um there's some really interesting things that uh, i want to ask you about in in this very first encounter you uh you say that this being uh, the way you depict her visually she has this uh, thick head of hair dark hair right um, black hair black hair yeah at any time, did you see her without that hair? No, I never did. It wasn't until later, many years later, I saw her without that hair, that wig. All right, so so you did at some point see her without that hair. So yes, so you, in, in other words, you knew it was a wig then, at yes. that point. Right. Okay. In this very first interaction where uh, uh, you report meeting her. You've got this whole... So it's, it's sort of the prototypical situation where the creatures come into your room, they float you outside, there's a craft above the house, correct? Yes. All right. And then basically, you're not sure, you don't have a specific memory of how you were taken, you know, how you went into the craft. You kind of go from the scene where you're floating... To now, you're you're in the craft, and uh, you meet this woman, and there's a smaller being with her. And it, one of the things that struck me as interesting is that you ask this smaller being, "Is that your mom?" And then you uh-huh. say the 
both the 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 the, the being and Crescent smiled, right? Yeah. So now I have to tell you. So in reading many, 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 many accounts of interactions with these beings, I don't think I've ever, ever heard of someone seeing these things smile. Well, yeah, it, well, the little gray guy, he gave me what I can only call a very quick smile. It was almost like a blink in a way. And then I noticed the woman that she was just kind of smiling to herself, looking at me. And that, that was it, really. Okay. And, so, I, I, you know, I didn't know what to say. So, so they didn't really... um. You didn't get that there was any answer. They didn't really respond to your query about whether or not she was his mother. Right. But what you, what you then have is the situation where they insert this thing. It, she inserts this thing in your nose. Yeah, right? she does. Okay. As this was happening, did you? What was your internal emotional state? I mean, were you scared? Did you feel like your emotions were being manipulated at that point, and you you didn't feel scared? I didn't feel scared. It wasn't until after that she had put in the implant or whatever it was, mm -hmm. and she removed it. I remember started crying, saying, you hurt me, you hurt me. And then uh, she kind of started soothing me, and then the pain went away. And she just kind of basically like dried my tears. Hmm. Okay. Now, this happened when you were eight. Yeah. And was was that the only time in your memories that they put anything inside of your body like that? That's the only time I remember, yes. I don't remember any other time that there was an implant or anything like that, except one time. Did you ask why they were doing this, while they were doing it? No. No, I didn't. I, it was like, in a way, you know, I, I wasn't feeling anything. Uh, I, in a way, you might say I was just kind of blanked out. You know, it was going on, but that was it. I didn't know why they were doing it. I just knew that they were, that she was. Not to jump forward, but there's something about the visual descriptions and the depictions in the book that's kind of curious to me, and I want to ask you about this. Um, there are more than a few places in the book where you describe seeing more than one of these beings, and, and the way you paint them, the renditions have the face being gray, but the rest of the bodies, because you report that you have all sorts of sexual encounters with these beings, um, the face is gray, but it looks like in your in your paintings, the rest of their bodies are, are flesh-colored. Yes. Some of them look very uh, flesh-like. Uh, I do remember a couple of times when I thought their bodies was rather grayish in color, and uh, other times I kind of remember especially with a couple of the large women, their skins, their flesh was very red. How, uh, okay, and again, not to jump ahead, because I realize we're doing that, but how did their skin feel? Actually, it felt like skin, really. I didn't notice any difference about them. Uh, the only thing that I really noticed was their hands. Their fingers were rather long, and they had very long fingernails but their uh, bodies were quite flesh-colored. Before we get on to more details about the unusual encounters of David Huggins. Hey, neighbors. 
The old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, David Huggins, we'll call him a contactee or abductee, which you prefer, or do you prefer both? It doesn't matter. Take your pick. Well, you they refer say, to me in different ways, too, that don't make sense, so I don't worry about it. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> well, one one is almost voluntary, one is involuntary. I think that's fairly straightforward. An abductee is someone who's sort of, you know, a contactee. It's almost as if there was more of a cooperation. An abductee, well, an abduction is, to my understanding, done against someone's will, right? Right. You know, it could be both, for all I know. I mean, basically, as a child, I mean, they would come into the house and take me out. So I guess you can say I'm an abductee, but later you might say I became a contactee or just an experiencer. I, I really don't know what label to call it, really. Can I ask one thing? I asked David this once, and I don't remember his answer uh, completely. I asked him, was the communication between him and this, these entities by uh, telepathy or by voice because I think that's a very interesting thing to learn about sure, and sure. I believe he said both uh, and uh, that's confusing I wonder if he can explain just what he means well I just remembered that there were times when the woman would look at me and I, would, I wouldn't see her, her lips move but I knew what she was thinking or saying. Did it yes, come directly into your mind, or did you hear something with your ears? It was just like in my mind. Okay. And then there were times where, for instance, the woman, the woman said, when I had told the woman that I had got a whipping, she looked at me, and I saw her mouth move, and she said, then don't tell them. 
So it was like in English, and at the same time, it was telepathic at other times. Hmm. That's very interesting. It, it yeah. was a confusion of the two. It was both or neither or whatever it was. Well, it sounds like there was telepathic communication going on, and at times, and correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, David, at times you saw some lip movement, but there were other times perhaps when there was communication where you didn't see lip movement. Would that be an accurate right. statement? All right. Yes. In the book, you you dub this woman creature Crescent. Where did that name come from? Uh, actually, uh, it was during the last time I saw her, which was like in the um, early 70s. Uh, she told me that she was gonna, they were going to leave me alone for a while. But she says, you'll always see my symbol in the sky. And suddenly, uh, as soon as she said that, I saw the crescent of the new moon in my mind. Hmm. So I called it crescent. Okay, but during, during the years that these interactions were going on, there was no name. Right, absolutely. Did you okay. ever ask these people, can I call you by a name? What is your name? Uh, no, as far as I know, I never did. All right. So there's an illustration, David, again, right towards the beginning of the book, called Watching the Earth, and this is all apparently happening based on the book, on the very same night you first meet Crescent. Right. Um, at some point, you're taken to this uh, some sort of a portal or window, and you see the Earth in the distance. The drawing of the man is very unusual, and doesn't look like anything else in the book. Could you describe what this man looked like? Okay, uh, he's very tall. He has on his head, on the back of his head, what I can only call a hair bun. It's, it's with the protrudence of, uh, on the back of his head. Mm -hmm. His eyes were quite uh, fluorescent or luminous, and he seemed rather thin and gaunt. And that's really all I can say about him, yet he seemed to be like one of the people who were in command of what was going on. So this thing that's on the back of his head is uh, sort of a fleshy appendage coming out? Uh, yes, and there is hair growing out of it. Hmm. I just right. call it a hair bun. I have no, else, no idea what else to call it. All right. You then talk about after this, he tells you something. He, he talked to you, or, and, and I'm wondering, as you're looking out the window, and he's talking to you, so at that point, you're not looking at him. You're looking out the window at the Earth. Right. So at that point, do you know if the, the communications that are happening are telepathic or are they verbal? Uh, I think they were telepathic. And I kind of remember him saying, it's a very beautiful planet, and it should be taken care of. And that's about all I was aware of. Okay. I think that was all that was said. Now, in the intro to the book that's a Faro writes, uh -huh. uh, it, it, it doesn't mention anything about them ever giving you any of the um, kinds of statements that other contactees talk about getting. Uh, what, and, and I'm just, I want you to clarify this for us. So I'm just going to read here from the book where she says, for example, David's visitors never gave him spiritual, philosophical, or semi-religious cosmic messages as they do to so many others. They never promised that they would save humanity from an upcoming worldwide disaster. 
they they don't talk about any of this, but but you're saying that this creature did say something to you about uh, an, a bit of an ecological message, correct? He just said it was a very beautiful planet and it should be taken care of, and that is all I remember. I I think it's just that that was not emphasized, and uh, David was not given any instructions, if you could call it that, to. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell other people on earth uh, about any given philosophy or to go forward and uh, make public statements and so on and I find that extremely in- interesting because as you're pointing out uh, most uh, contactees uh, slash abductees do have a message and David really uh, does not right yeah exactly I think that's that's kind of curious right because it is so often something that's that's uh, that's conveyed, but it's just I'm just curious because uh, there's no uh, in 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 studying up on David, Jim, there, there's no mention that the being said anything like that to him. So I think that it's just interesting, you know, trying to pull in some of the details here. Now, David, you at that point, you, your your memory of this whole event ends. Next thing you know, you're waking up in bed, and and there's a sl- a slight you've got a slight nosebleed. Right. Yes. Uh, and this my mother noticed my nose was red, uh-huh. and uh, and I kind of said, "It feels so." She said, "Well, you must have scratched yourself during <laughs> your sleep, something like that." Mm-hmm. But that was about it. As a kid living on a farm, you're always getting scratches or bumps one right. way or the other. Right. Um, question for you, David. In later years, as you start to look into some of this. And I just don't know this because I didn't do corroborating investigation of, of this. Were there people reporting UFOs in that part of the country in the time frame that you were having these experiences? You know, I kind of remember seeing uh, on TV the uh, the lights over uh, the White House during, was it, 52 or 53, mm-hmm. somewhere along there? 52, yeah. 52, yeah. Right. And... Um, I know at times I, I heard adults talk about it, and but they weren't laughing at all. They were. It was rather like you know it was serious conversation. But as a kid, you know, I only heard like snatches of it. Right, right. Whereas today, it seems to be made fun of, really. A uh, personal question for you, David. What was your relationship with your parents? It was quite good. I, you know, my mother was loving. My father, well, he was kind of standoffish. Uh, but um, all in all, it, w- it was, uh, I guess you might say, a normal family. Right. What was your religious background, if I may ask? Well, at that time, I guess uh, we had these, what would you call them, uh, holy rollers, these tent revival meetings that sometimes we would go to. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. Okay. So... You, there wasn't like a regular regimen of going to church, or your no, parents weren't real religious, uh, like like is so often the case down in the south. We're talking about Georgia, right? Okay. Uh, no, not really. All right. You didn't tell any of your siblings about this, and I'm guessing you didn't tell any of your your friends about any of this either, correct? Correct. I never said anything to anyone. All right. There's some interesting interactions here. There's some interesting visuals. I just want to, to ask you a couple of questions about this. There's one visual um, on page 24 of the book. It's called Snake. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, right. Tell us about that story, if you would. 
Okay, um, we had a two shed where me and my brother, we would play underneath the floorboards. And uh, one late morning, I was going to go under the tool shed. And suddenly, just as I was about to go underneath, this little gray guy comes out from underneath the tool shed. I jump back and I start running away. And then all it was, I hear my name being called and I turn around and there is the woman. And she tells me to come back. And I go back over to her and she's got her arms around me and we're looking at the spot where I was going to go underneath the building. And out comes a big black snake. And, uh, it just slithers past us, and that was it. The the reason I'm at so you didn't recognize what kind of snake it was. You didn't necessarily know it, it was, was a venomous it was, snake. It wasn't a poisonous snake. Okay. It was just what do they call it? Uh, maybe I think it's called a black racer. So so it wasn't a venomous snake then. It's not something that where if you was you were bitten, it would have like killed you or anything. Right. But if I had gone underneath the building and I saw the snake, I could have seen myself getting really hurt, really badly, just trying to get out from underneath the building. Okay. The the specific question I have for you, in the painting, the way you've depicted it is that uh, Crescent is holding you in a certain way and you've got your hand on her. She's actually got her arms around you and is holding uh-huh. you to her. Is, is that actually the depiction of what happened? Yeah, that's what I remember. Hmm. So there's already this, uh, it, and it almost seems like it's it's somewhat possessive. I guess, or maybe she was holding me, <laughs> so maybe I wouldn't run away. I don't know. Okay. I just knew that she was holding me like that, and we were all watching the snake move across the yard and disappear among the tall grass. All right. So on the very next page... There's an image called Hide and Seek, and it's it's a uh, it's an image I've seen reproduced on the web quite a bit actually. Um, where there's this uh, sphere of light behind you, it's kind of like this uh, this this oval light object, and you're running from it. And it says you ran in fear. Now, what we'd like to understand here is the relationship between fear and lack of fear, because it seems like in some of these experiences. Like in this painting, for example, you're 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 running from this thing, and you look pretty darn scared. Yeah, I was. I didn't know what it was, and it was chasing me. This thing. It was almost as if we were playing tag, but I didn't see the fun in it. And then I remember I ran away from it, and it stopped. And then I just turned around, and suddenly it was gone. So it was just like blinked right out of sight. So you were afraid when that was happening. But then when you're faced with the beings, um, it seems like sometimes there's fear, sometimes there's not. How do you feel about that? I don't know, really. I I know I happen to like the woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't frightened of her. She didn't scare me. And yet other times, uh, I mean, I would see the little gray guys and I would get scared of them. But I can't say that I was ever frightened by the woman. Okay. The other thing that, that I noticed that was really interesting, and you and I talked about this on the phone a little bit, um, in some of your depictions of the craft, in some of your artwork, the, the craft is shown with landing gear down, when right. these things are down on the ground. In other paintings, they're shown without landing gear. You've got this one uh, 
egg-shaped UFO behind this tree, and it's just sitting right on the ground. Right. Did you ever see one of these things actually come down and land? Uh, let me think. Uh, I can't say I ever did. Either I saw it in the sky or it was already down on the ground. You never saw the intermediate step. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, who is also acting as a panelist here because he'll be asking some of the tough questions, too, so we can blame him for it. We have David Huggins, featured in the book called Love and an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. And we all agree they don't like the title, but that's the book. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, David, okay, so you didn't see the craft actually land it was either landed or in the skies, but no intermediary thing like they say, okay, David, we're going to leave now, and then you see them enter the craft as they do in the science fiction films, and it takes off and goes out there. No, but you just made me... Uh, I, I have a painting, but which is not in the book, um, where actually I see the UFO, or whatever it is, I don't know, but it's hovering in the sky, and... It was like I heard somebody say, watch this, David. And suddenly, it well, it went through everything. I mean, it didn't go through the air up into the sky and vanish, okay, as a small dot. It just went through everything, as if everything was like, well, wallpaper. And then the wallpaper closed up immediately right after it had gone through it. It was so quick, I couldn't believe it. Hmm. On page 27 of the book, um, there's a, there's a painting, uh, it says that when you were 11, you guys, uh, you guys moved. Right. And you, you moved, uh, within Georgia. Um, and that you saw a UFO behind the tree line following you. Yes. Okay. What I find really curious here, David, it says that you saw this and you didn't say anything to your family about it. Why? I was told not to. 
So I mean, were, I never mentioned after the woman had told me not to say anything to anyone. I kept, I, I agreed. I never said anything. I guess one of the main reasons that I was afraid I might get hit again. Okay, so you basically you you were I basically t- kept my mouth shut. Is what I all right? Thought. Okay, so so you weren't receiving some kind of a mental message at that moment. Don't say anything. You were basically just remembering what had been said to you before, and you weren't saying anything then. Right. Okay. So this then take, uh, takes us in the book to uh, uh, where things get, you know, truly seriously weird. Um, oh, yeah. the, the, the first time. So tell us about this. Give us the setup for this, if you would. You mean by when I lost my virginity? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was about 17. And I had remembered, I had seen some friends a couple of days before, and we were all going to meet down at Altoona Lake to go swimming. A friend of theirs had a boat, and we were going to go uh, water skiing. And uh, it was a very hot day, so instead of walking on my, uh, the dusty road down to the lake, I went through the woods where it was cool. And I get to a very shady spot, and... Suddenly, I just noticed this woman. She's sitting under the trees, and as soon as she sees me, she gets up and she comes right over to me. I am scared, but at the same time, I'm incredibly aroused sexually. And I just, well, dropped my pants, really. It fell down to the ground, and she got on top of me. She moved her body a couple of times, and I reached my climax. And all the while this is happening, I am looking into those big bottomless eyes. After I had finished reaching my uh, climax, I just passed out. And a few minutes later, I came to, and I didn't remember a thing. The only thing that I knew was that I was lying on the ground with my pants down around my knees. And that was all I knew. And I don't know why I was on the ground. But I do remember getting scared because I didn't understand what had happened. And I quickly pulled my uh, clothes up, grabbed my uh, towel, and rushed toward the Altoona Lake. And I don't know, within the next couple of minutes, I didn't even remember that. And I totally forgot all about it. What did your friends say when you got there? Uh, nothing. Hey, David, how's it going? Okay, fine. Hey, you want to go swimming or do you want to go in the boat? No, I want to go water skiing. However long this detour was, it wasn't long enough where they noticed your absence. Right, right. It, ha- it was only for, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the most, I would think. When you talk about you saw her and then you got a little scared, but you got aroused. Yeah, it's like it was both at the same time. Right. I And like... I wanted to run, but I didn't want to run. I I don't know how to say it, David. I just, I I guess the the power of sex, you know, took over. Do you think that maybe here, David, you were being influenced a little bit of mind control on the part of them? It's possible. All I know is, is that the woman was there, I became incredibly aroused as soon as I saw her, and yet at the same time, I was kind of scared. But the, the arousal, now normally a 17-year-old boy is going to get aroused if he sees 
a nude girl. Now she yeah. wasn't in the painting. She's not nude, right. right? She isn't nude. She's got. She's wearing that house coat or whatever it is. That right. So, so, so that's garb that doesn't look particularly arousing. Right. But I just know I became very aroused. All right. All right. And I was just like, and also another thing, I could not, not look away from her. It's just like her eyes were boring into mine, and my eyes were just looking back into hers. So, David, when this intercourse happens, based on your memory, obviously it's just you're saying it's happened when you were 17. That's quite a while ago. Right. but And you didn't have clear recollections of this until many years later. Right. All right. Um, in your recollection... Thing, it was very intense. All right. So, so here's a question for you, and, and certainly you've had enough sexual experience since then to maybe be able to answer this in a way that's, that's constructive. She mounts you. Was she already wet? I can't say that she was. I just remembered that I was just lying on the ground, and I just could not look away from her. All right, but you don't remember possible. that. You, but, but so then... There's more of an emphasis on looking into her face and her eyes than perhaps there is awareness of whatever sexual stimulation you were going through. Right. I don't know how it came about, but I just know instantly I was aroused as soon as I saw her. All right. Um, later on, now again, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, as you go through the book, as you see the depictions of sexual dynamics between you two, it looks like she's always mounted on you. It looks like she's always on top. Is that accurate, or did it play out in any bit of a different way? Uh, no. I only know of two times where I was on top, but it was not with her. Uh, but on the whole, of all the experiences I've ever had, I was always on the bottom. Okay. So, in other words, she was pretty much in in control, essentially, of yeah. thrusting, she was in control of inducing orgasm. So basically, she was always in control of inducing orgasm. She was always in control of the situation. Yeah, I would say so. Yes, very much so. All right, and and that's pretty much that's a consistent element. So, um, you know, in, in what you're saying is with this woman Crescent, that there was only one position with her, and. So as the sexual interactions with her progress, David, I mean, for example, there's one thing that happens later on, page 38, kissing. Um, uh, yeah. So describe we, that to us. Well, please. it was just like uh, we started rubbing heads. And, it, I mean, it was just very, very sensual. It felt so nice. And for me, and, and I still feel this way, it was their way of kissing. Uh, the next time you're with the woman, you and her rub heads and see how nice it is. <laughs> well, actually, I do that. I, I, I sort of do that anyway. I don't think oh, that's okay. my, Just, not, not my alien upbringing or anything, but that's <laughs> my, and that's better than butting heads, by the way. Yes, yeah, certain. Absolutely. Now, um, this is a point that occurs to me as you refer to this interaction with this woman. Now, is this a love affair or did she want to have sex with you maybe for some ulterior motive? Was that ever conveyed to you? 
I know there was children, but I will say this. In the very beginning, David, it was as if I was being milked. All right. She, it was almost very clinical, very sterile. Uh, also, there are times where I think, well, the little gray guys would come in and they would collect my semen in some container. But when I was with the woman in the very beginning, it just like, it was just something to do. I don't know what, whether she was enjoying me or not. But she would get on top of me, she would work her body a little bit, I'd reach my climax, and then she would get up and leave. Okay, so there's no, no indication here, David that she climaxed, that she was enjoying the encounter. To her, it was just something done clinically? Yeah, yeah, in the very beginning. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to say that, yes. Now, this brings us back to the lubrication issue, David, okay. and I don't want to be a persistent about that, but um, certainly, as you're stating, I mean, this. Um, if we assume that this was going on for years, at the same time, uh, you were perhaps also having uh, a sex life outside of this reality with human women? Uh, yes, I was. Okay. So at that point, it, it's kind of inevitable that you're going to find out about the issue of lubrication because obviously in order to make sex comfortable, you know, if the woman is dry, it's going to be somewhat uh, harsh and uncomfortable, right? Right. All right. So as you're learning more from your human partners, relate to us then how this played out with Crescent. I mean, at what point did, did and I guess I'm asking a specific question here about the evolution of the sexual dynamic with her. At what point did you notice or did you ever notice whether or not she would get increasingly lubricated? I mean, if she's on top of you, she's mounting you. You're obviously, uh, not obviously, but I would suspect you would be having sensations. Uh, yes, I was. About how she was feeling, about how, and, and we can get into, you know, a lot of detail about the specifics of her genitalia, whether or not they even look human. Um, but how did they feel? And this is why I asked you before whether or not she was wet. Is there some point where you notice that there is a, there is not an arc of lubrication happening with her that basically she's always kind of like one consistency or is there at some point where you're noticed that she's getting wetter perhaps implying more physical participation on her part do you understand my question uh yes i do um like i said in the very beginning it was very sterile but i know that later there were times when it just felt very nice and it was very smooth. It wasn't rough or uncomfortable. Now, I don't know whether that indicates that she, you know, was lubricant or whatever, but I just know that it was very pleasant. It didn't hurt or anything. We're going to break for our hourly break, and then we return with Jim Mosley, editor, publisher, chief cook, and bottle washer of Saucer Smear, and David Huggins, who is featured in the book Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. But you know what? Listening to what he says, it doesn't sound like a purgatory to me. We'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. 
That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with David Huggins, featured in the book Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. And we have Jim Mosley, editor-publisher of Saucer Smear. And, you know, Jim and I used to joke a lot in the early days about sex and saucers. And now we have this report, the story of an ongoing affair, encounter, experiences with this alien woman. Now, this started, David, when you were 17 did it ever stop? Um, I mean, sexually. I think, no. I mean, I think I had sex. No, no, actually, it hasn't really stopped. Uh, it hasn't been as frequent as I knew it to be, as I've known it to be. Uh, but uh, there are new children. All right. And, Excuse me, didn't you but, say but, that this still occurs perhaps every... A week or two uh, up until the present time? No, not to the present time, no. Uh, I would say uh, when I've had sex with this woman, it's about maybe maybe two or three times a year now. Oh, it isn't nearly as often as it used to be. Right. Okay. All right, David. So, and again, just, just to, to get a, try to get a better, better understanding for your experiences, the way you depict this being and other beings that are female in this book, um, they have breasts, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, certainly they have uh, pubic hair. That's another uh, thing that's depicted. Uh, let me correct that now. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I am thinking sometimes they do have pubic hair, but now I don't think they do. I think the main reason why I put uh, pubic hair on these women is that all the human women I have ever known has have, have had pubic hair. But I am not thinking that they do. Okay, okay. now we go into human women. Now, after you had your initial encounter at 17, mm -hmm. you're a young guy in heat, a virgin as they say, now you're experienced, okay, what about your relationships with human women or those you think are human? Were you married? Did you have other relationships long term? Well, I, when this was going on, I had uh, very short-term relationships. I might go out on a date with one woman and then that was it. I would call her up, say, a day later or whatever, and she's busy or she's going out, she's seeing someone else. It seemed like for a long period of time, there were no relationships except with these women, whoever they are. And you're pretty sure that for the majority of this, it was the same being. Because later, later on, you, you, well, see, later on, I guess, you talk about there being these other women, these other, you know, hybrid beings, whatever they are. Right. But at the beginning... You think it it's always her. Crescent? Right. So It was always her. Ha so here's a question for you. 
How do you know that? I just know. I I, I don't know how to explain it, David. I, I really don't. Yeah. It's just that when she showed up, I just knew it was her. I, I don't know what else to tell you, really. It's okay. just, there was just this knowing. Now, now, I understand something here. We're going from the age of 17, and now, how old are you now? Now am I? Yeah. I'm 66. Okay, you're 66 years old. You've had this experience for 49 years of your life. You have sexual interactions with an alien woman. Did she ever age, this particular one, Crescent? No. All right. I can tell you that for sure. Okay. I never, no, 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 no. She never aged. Now, in in the interim, while this is going on, at a certain point, you, you do indeed get married. So I just, let's get some timeline stuff here. The sexual experiences with this creature started age 17. Right. At what age did you get married? I got married when I was about 33 years old. All right. You're real, and how long were you with your wife before you got married? You guys lived together for a certain amount of time? Uh, for about a year, yes. Okay. In that period, were these experiences still going on? No, they weren't. All right. So when did the experiences go dormant? I would say, oh, let me see, uh, 72, maybe 73, somewhere along in there. Okay. So there is a there is a chunk of time then when the sexual dynamic stops, all the experiences stop, there's no interactions whatsoever with these things? As far as I know, no. All right. It was like they said that they were going to leave me alone for a while and that I wouldn't remember anything. And uh, I would say from, I don't know, 1973, somewhere along in there, until 1987. As far as I know, during that period, they never entered my life. Now, you mentioned the memories here. So these memories came back to you via hypnotism? No. No, it didn't. Uh, I, I was very, for some reason, I was getting very... It was after 87 now, okay? And I don't know what was wrong. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was get up. I get up in the middle of the night, creep around the house, look in the closets, thinking there was someone in the house, but I didn't know anything. But anyway, I um, wound up with a copy of Intruders by, uh, what's his name? Bud Hopkins. And he has another chapter in that book called Other Women, Other Men. And I just, when I got the book, I opened it up, and I was on that chapter, and I read it, and I go, oh, my God, here is the woman I never told anyone about. And image upon image, memory upon memory just started flooding my head. So your memories came, uh, David, your memories came back as a result of uh, reading Hopkins' book? Just that chapter. No, that's interesting. You know, he didn't tell me that before. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know. Anyway, what was really weird was how I got the book. There was this really nice bookstore that I used to go to. And I had heard about the book Intruders. 
And I went to that bookstore and I asked the guy if he had it, and he said no. But there was another bookstore down the street, so I went down there, and he didn't have it either. So anyway, I, I start walking back home. Anyway, I passed the first bookstore, and the guy came running out of the building, out of the bookstore. He says, David, I've got your book here. I said, I, I thought you said you didn't have it. Yeah, but this woman came in, she gave it to me, and she told me to give it to you. And then she just left. Hmm. And that's how I got the book. That is very interesting. Now, going back to these encounters, David, um, at a certain point, you moved to New York City uh, to study art. Yes. I was and 19. you were 19 years old. When you get to New York City, you claim that these encounters basically just kept on happening. And, and in the book, you depict that there was this uh, some sort of a portal or hole that opens up in the wall, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, I noticed something in looking at, and I've got a lot of questions relating to this, David. I noticed something in looking at a few different variations of the illustration. There's kind of an interesting thing going on visually. In, in one depiction of this hole, the rim of the hole is kind of like a nondescript light color. In another depiction, the rim of the hole looks like it's black when you're looking back in towards your bedroom. Then in yet another depiction of the hole, the whole thing where um, where Crescent has the dying baby, the hole is depicted with these some kind of circular impressions along the sides of the hole. Oh, uh, actually, uh, when that hole opened up, mm -hmm. it was as if everything was pushed back upon itself. Those protrusions that you see in that painting is the wooden lattice behind the plaster. And the, well, I can only say the molecules or the atoms of the wood and of the plaster was just pushed back upon itself as if it was made of clay. You never heard any sound no, that was generated. It was total silence. All right. When, question for you. When you're, you're laying in bed in the room and this thing starts to happen, it's happening in silence, but do you notice anything about your perception of what's going on I around you? I feel different for some reason. I feel something like, I don't know what to call it really, but almost like a euphoria in a way. I just feel different. I'm not scared. But yet, at the same time, I am totally cognizant of what's going on. I'm wide awake, but I am not afraid at all. But I do feel like a, oh, God, I don't even know what to call it, really. But I just felt my consciousness shift, if you will, as soon as that opening opened up. Hmm. In the um, paintings, you have the depiction here that while the sexual interactions are going on, there is this, and, and this comes up earlier in the book, where there's this praying mantis-like being that is part of the repertoire of beings you say that you encountered. And it looks like every time there's a sexual interaction, there's this praying mantis being standing there, like, in the background, watching. That's right, yes. He, uh, the opening would open up. He would come through first, and he would stand in the corner, out of the way, 
and then the woman would come in. And he would just stand there. He wouldn't say anything or anything like that. He would just stand there. And he was like, I don't know whether he was controlling me in some way or whether he was observing what was going on between me and her. But uh, he was there all the time. Is there a reason that you refer to him as he? Uh, no, really. I just kind of think he's a man. He could be a female for all I know. Uh, lots of things are coming <laughs> to my attention in terms of questions here, and I'm going to chime in in a moment. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox, but most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. This is James Carrion, International Director of the Mutual UFO Network. You are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have David Huggins and Jim Mosley, and we're exploring the unusual life, and I'm not going to repeat the title of the book again, of David Huggins. Okay, a couple of things here. First of all, you got married, you were in your 30s. Right. Now, are you still married to the same person? No. Are you married at all now? No, I'm not. Was that your one and only marriage? Uh, yes. Okay. Did the marriage end at the point that the encounters resumed? Uh, I, it was like I was trying to tell Janice what was going on with me, and she didn't want to hear it, and we just kind of grew apart. And I did not know what to do, but it was like, Things just were not working with us, and so we got a divorce. It's interesting to note, as I noted in my write-up about this in, in Saucer Smear, you and your ex-wife still live in the same house, presumably in different parts of it, and right. you still still have your son living with you, I guess, well, he's over age now, I think, but you share custody, you might say. So it was a relatively friendly uh, divorce. Uh, yes, yes, it was. It's just that she just could not take what I was saying. And even, the, uh, even now, I, I kind of want to go over to her and say, listen, just let me tell you exactly what this is about. But she will not listen to me. Well, I'm, I'm just commenting on the fact that they're able to live together in relatively a harmonious way under the same roof after all this time and that as I gather was a financially 
a smart move also because otherwise they would have had to sell, sell the house and there would have been more difficulties. So, I mean, I just think that's an interesting aspect of the whole thing. You have a son, David. Yes. What are his feelings about these experiences and what you've reported about them? Well, he grew up with them. He saw the paintings that I was doing and everything. And so he's very comfortable with it. He comes to the art shows, which I'm in or everything. Um, Janice doesn't, of course. But he seems to be quite comfortable with this. How old is your son? He's 25 now. He's in Thailand right now, actually. He's going to be over there for about a year teaching. Question, David. Um, Did your son ever have any comparable experiences to yours? Michael has never told me that he's had any experiences. Though there was one time when I was living in Pennsylvania and he was with me. And me and this and Michael, there was one of the little gray guys that came into the house and he was looking at Michael. Well, that raises the point, too. Did Michael see anything? Has he ever seen anything when these beings were around? Is there anybody else who actually saw? Okay, so you see them, but basically you're alone, so there's nobody around to see what you're seeing. Right. Did you ever think here, and this is, of course, one of those questions that we ask sideways with no disrespect, that these other beings created a mental impression of you having interactions with an alien woman, and all they're doing is harvesting your sperm. There's no physical relationship. I can't say that, no. There was a physical relationship. I mean, there are times when uh, I was with a woman, and there were other times when there were little gray guys, and they would harvest the sperm. But either way, the point is to harvest your sperm, right? Right. Okay, it's not just to hang out with David Huggins and to have a relationship. Whether this is the same alien woman, whether it's her clone, whatever it is, they want your sperm, so therefore you've had hybrid kids, maybe? Oh, I've had a lot of hybrid kids. I watched them from just being born all the way up until they were in their 20s. Now, during these exposures to these beings, do you talk to them, say, hi, I'm daddy? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you a little incident that, that happened. It's when these hybrids, I don't know, I guess they're like five or six years old, okay? And I was playing a game with, the, with them. And I said, listen, Daddy is going to go hide, and you'll see if you can find him, all right? And so I went off and I hid behind two of the very large women. And... Uh, one of the little girls found me, and she kept saying, there's Daddy, I found Daddy, I found Daddy. And that was, that was it. Are you in touch with the children at any point in time now, or were they just out of sight, out of mind after a few encounters? Uh, basically, out of sight, out of mind. So, David, you know, Gene is a parent, I am not. But my right. girlfriend's a parent, and I certainly have a lot of friends who are parents. And there's something about this that I find a little odd as you're describing this, which is that it sounds like, A, you don't mind that there, you say that there are these, like, you know, at least 60 hybrid kids 
that have come out of out of your genetic material, but yet it sounds like you don't mind not having access to them. Well, it isn't so much having access with them. There was an incident that occurred between me and the insect being where um, after I had touched the babies and I wanted to stay. And he said, he kept saying to me, no, David, you have to go back. Well, let's rewind because we don't. Okay, so anybody who hasn't looked at the book doesn't know this. So let's set the stage for this, please. Okay. Uh, There was one day where I was in my studio in my apartment, and the wall opened up, and there was the woman, and she's really stressed out. And she's saying, David, the baby is dying. And I go like, what? What baby? And she says, you're a baby, but it's dying. And then I asked her to show it to me, which at first she wouldn't do. And then I yelled it out, show me my baby. And she picked the baby up, and she held it out in front of her. And I remember being a little shocked. And I said, no, 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 don't hold the baby like that. Cradle the baby in your arm. Listen, I've got to come there. And she said, no, it's not allowed. And I said, my baby's dying and I can't come there. Watch this. And I lay down on my bed and I pass out. And instantly, I'm there. I don't know where there is. I just know that I'm there. There are three insect guys there. One of them comes over to me, a little mad at me, and he says, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. And I remember saying, my baby's dying. I want to see and touch my baby. And at first he said no. And then I didn't know what to do except I just bent one knee, then the other one, and I just begged him on my knees to let me see and touch the baby. He was rather surprised by this action, but he said, okay. And I touched the baby. As soon as I touched it, as I was touching it, I i don't know what it was, like a spark of, a, of static electricity jumped from my hand to the baby. And I remember saying, wow, did you see that? Let me do that again. I touched the baby again. The same results. And for some reason, there is a great deal of excitement. The other two insect beings are gone. They're gone in a flash. And I am taken to another room, and it is filled with babies. And I'm there for one reason only, and that's to touch them. And then after I had done that, uh, I got into an argument with the insect being, saying, I want to stay. And he says, you can't stay. And anyway, I really go off on a tangent. And anyway, the next, anyway, the guy just looks at me, and the next thing I know, I'm back in my apartment. And... Uh, I was just so upset. I was so very, very upset. Anyway, that night, they showed back up, and I'm still angry at the insect being. And then he says, David, listen, you can't stay, but every time you're here, you can visit the babies anytime you want. And so that was that. Could I ask a question uh, uh, that uh, I've had in the back of my mind? I think it's something that anyone would ask. We understand that if there is sexual intercourse between beings that are not of the same species, according to our understanding here on Earth, uh, that cannot uh, produce an offspring. 
So uh, just taking it on a literal basis like that, it seems, I have to say, impossible uh, that you could so easily and successfully have uh, offspring with uh, these alien women wherever they may be from because they are whatever they are and wherever they're from they are not us they are not the human species uh, i think that's clear and has that ever uh, well i'm sure it's occurred to you but do you have any comment or any thoughts about that well the only thing i can say is I think there were some failures, all right? I don't know this for sure, but I feel that there were. But finally, after trial and error, they got it right. And well, they got result, what right? What is it that they got right? That they were able to have children with a human male and a non-human female. You ever think here, maybe, and this is just a strange question, but maybe they are manipulating the genetic makeup of the sperm after it's harvested from you. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have David Huggins featured in the book called Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. It doesn't sound like a purgatory to me, and I think David would agree. We also have Jim Mosley, the editor and the publisher of Saucer Smear. Where did I give that address? Well, you know what? We were going to ask you to do that later on, but inasmuch as you have asked, and because you're an old dear friend, Jim, Please tell listeners how they can learn more well, if about you, if you beg me, Yes, if you beg me, I will tell you. That's uh, Post Office Box 1709, Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041, Saucer Smear. Thank you. Why don't you give that address one more time so people well, don't, I don't have to mind stop if I the do. playback? Sure. You're insisting. I will do it again. Uh, that's a saucer smear. Two words. P.O. Box 1709. Key West, Florida, 33041. Okay, David Huggins. One of the things we talk about in the PowerCast is motivation. So obviously, we have to think here the aliens are doing this for a reason. Why do they need to create hybrid beings. they ever communicate anything to you about why? No, they never have. Did you I, ask? I, I have never asked them. I, it's like, David, it's like I am there. It's like I am there for a specific purpose. And I do whatever 
they want me to do or ask me to do. But I have never asked questions in regard to this phenomenon. I guess maybe because I just don't know what kind of question I would ask. But it never came up. It never, it, it never occurred to you to ask them why this was happening? No, it never did. In, in, later on in the book, you talk about uh, the situation where, at a certain point, uh, there is this public display where a couple of the other beings, female beings, uh, are, they're basically uh, have sex with you in front of a group of the other beings. And and in here you talk about it's it's under the designation of privacy, where uh, you're basically being asked to teach him about sexual techniques. That's what it sounds like to me here. Um, yeah. Right. And yeah. Uh, there's there's all these people watching you. And right. and what I found really interesting was I'm just going to read this from the book. David made love with one of the hybrid women with passion and sensitivity. He showed her how to kiss. Now. I find that especially interesting. Describe showing her how to kiss, please. Okay. Um, this is, actually, this is this, the painting that you're looking at, mm -hmm. uh, and the paintings. is just a series of about maybe 30 paintings. Okay. Uh, the reason why I did this series is that there was a great deal more uh, communication during this than any other time that I really remember. Some of it was telepathic, some of it was English, and some of it was body language. I had really gone off the deep end. I had, I, I really, I, had, I was basically like having a mental breakdown, if you will. And these two very large women grabbed a hold of me. And forced now, very me large to, meaning tall or fat or both? Tall. They were very large and very strong. I hadn't seen them before, but I had never seen them in action. And I'm on the floor. They forced me to the floor, and I'm there crying and just sobbing my heart out. Crescent rushes over to me, and she asked me, David, what is the matter? Which, as far as I can tell, is in English. Because I see her, I just, that's the way it sounded to me. And I say, my baby died. I was holding it, and I got scared and dropped it. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. And I just continued crying. So anyway, Crescent communicates this to the insect being. And then she comes back to me and says, David, your baby didn't die. See, here's your baby. And I look around, and there is another woman with a baby in her arms coming through a doorway. I get up. And I go over to the woman baby. The two very large women stay with me. They don't leave my side. Anyway, I go over there and I touch the baby and I'm saying, oh, you're all right. Okay. All the grief and guilt that I had felt just fell away from me. And, well, I turned around and I noticed that all the people there were very, very frightened. I could just tell how scared they were because of my outburst. They had not expected it. Anyway, I apologized to them. And several of them came over to me and they began touching me, letting me know, okay, it's all right, we understand now. The two large women uh, were still with me. 
And then a couple of other women, smaller women now, went over to the insect being. They said, can David stay? And yes, we would like for him to stay. And the insect being says, no, David has to go back. Anyway, upon hearing this, the two large women turned and started walking away from me. And I don't know, I just felt kind of bad about what we had to do because of my behavior. And I said, excuse me, ladies. And they turned around and they were just like really staring at me very intently. And then I said, I feel I owe you two a special apology. Listen, if there's anything I can do to make up for it, all you need to do is ask. And if I can, I will. Everybody stops doing whatever they were doing and they're just staring at me. The two large women come right over to me and they lift up their breasts right in front of my face. I am taken back and I lose my balance and I fall down. And I'm just blubbering like, uh, you want me to apologize that way? And, but nobody said anything. They're just standing there looking at me. Anyway, somebody helps me through my feet. And I'm looking around. Uh, what is very interesting here is that I sense a great deal of amusement or even mirth. They seem to be finding my behavior quite funny or humorous. And then I'm looking at the two large women. Their size and their strength are not lost on me. And then maybe basically out of like a sense of self-preservation, I asked them, can we be romantic? And then somebody says, show us. And that is how I started showing them. I go up to one of the women, uh, put my arms around her, then she put her arms around me. I give her a hug, she hugs me. It's like she's imitating everything that I am doing. And then I began kissing on her, her, um, her breast, and then I wind up kissing her on her lips. And that's the way that started. David, did you ever wonder why you were chosen for this kind of activity with these beings? Uh, why you instead of someone else? Uh, do you feel that you uh, have something special about you that caused you to be chosen? Or is that random? Well, if there is, I wish I knew what it was because I definitely don't. You don't know uh, why you were chosen? No, no. It okay. couldn't be just the simple fact that I was a little kid living on an isolated farm in Georgia. It could be just that, but I really can't tell you. Now, David, uh, you, you just said that you kissed her on her lips. Right. This might be the only time I've ever heard anybody describe any of these beings as having lips. Could you be more well, explicit? Well, they were very thin, but, you know, she had lips. I didn't think they're lips. There just could be a gash in there in her mouth. Right. I don't know, but I kissed her. I want to press further into details here. Okay. You kissed her. You kissed her not in a platonic way, but in a sexual way. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Does she have a tongue? Well, I didn't put my tongue in her mouth. You know, she didn't put her tongue in my mouth or anything like it. There was no French kissing. I was well, just, yeah, I mean, I, 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 right, go ahead. I mean, I was just kissing her. I kissed her on her lips. I kissed her on her cheek. I kissed her on her neck, you know, stuff like that. Okay. 
So, so it sounds like what what the romantic when you say romantic, you really do mean romantic and perhaps not sexual. Then, I mean, because this sounds to me, and everybody's got their own sexual proclivities. Um, but when I ask about a platonic kiss versus a sexual kiss, I, I was very much implying the use of tongue, um, which I think would be a clear delineation, you know, sort of between a quick little peck on the lips versus right. a more significant kiss. That's why I was asking that um, to find out. Well, here's a, a, a very related question, and, and I'll ask you this about these two beings and Crescent. What did they smell like? Really, I cannot remember any smell to any extent. Um, no, I, I cannot say there was a smell. What occurs to me as I listen to this, David, is that you don't seem to be a person who, under these circumstances, had very much free will. They basically forced all this to happen, and you accepted it. Did you ever look at this and say, hey, you know what? This has hurt me in my private life. Obviously, it hurt your marriage when you tried to reveal to your wife, now ex-wife, what happened. Certainly, it's hurt you in other ways. Don't you feel like you're kind of a victim here? I, if you want to be a victim, then you're going to be a victim. I've had, I've thought about that. Wow, man, I mean, boy, these guys have really taken advantage of me, man. But it seems it wasn't just... I, I want to say in the very beginning, that was the way I was speaking when I was starting to think about it, I was realizing what had happened to me. But then also I realized I was going places. I was meeting other beings. I was going to wherever they were. I kind of got the impression that it wasn't always just sex. but. No, no. In the very beginning, when I started remembering everything, I was feeling like a victim. But the more I felt that way, the worse it got for me. And then I said, this is ridiculous. I mean, I, I can't go around the rest of my life feeling like a victim. I'm not going to get anywhere. And it may have started off as me thinking myself as a victim. But now I think of myself as being a participant of something that was very important. Question for I don't David. know who it's for, right. or, or if it's for our species, or theirs, or both. But whatever I was involved with was very important. Question. In the book, there's a story about, there's a story called Transformation. The visualization of this, you say at one point, and it's not clear where this is happening. And I'd like you to, to amplify that, but you see this, this uh, giant bird creature thing. And you see it yeah. go into flames, and, and out of the ashes there is a, a dark-colored worm that's remaining. Can, right. can, okay, so first question. At what point, do you remember what year this was approximately when this happened? Uh, I would say this was like uh, in the final days before they left me alone. I would say 71, 72, somewhere along there. Okay. At that point, were you, because you were undergoing these experiences, had you familiarized yourself with any of the other UFO material that was out there at the time? No, no. I, the UFO material I didn't interest me. I mean, I liked a good science fiction movie, but that was just it. You know, it's just a movie. 
Mm-hmm. But I was never really into UFO uh, phenomena or anything like that. Okay. So have you ever heard, and uh, Gene and James, correct me if I get the pronunciation of this name wrong, have you ever heard the name Betty Andreessen? Oh, yeah. I have met Andreessen. Andreessen. They are incredible. Okay. You'd never heard of her? No. At what point did you hear about her? Uh, okay, it was very When I had done these paintings, I happened to be at that bookstore that I had mentioned earlier, and there was a book called The Andreasen Affair, or The Betty Andreasen Affair. Mm-hmm. And I take the book down, and I'm looking at it, and I go, oh, my God, there's the big bird, and there's the uh, worm, or whatever it is. Absolutely, right. But I didn't know anything about her until after I had done these paintings. Okay. It's kind of an interesting thing because there are some interesting similarities in what she describes as the beings. There are also some very interesting differences that I find a little baffling. Um, The differences in the structure of the hands. You described uh, the, the women, female creatures having fingernails. She describes these creatures with, I think it's like four fingers. The other thing that I find really fascinating is that when she has this experience, which exactly, I mean, it's pretty much an exact replica of what you say you saw, this this bird phoenix thing going on right. in, in flames and ending up with a, with a worm. Um, in, in her depiction of the experience, she talks about it as essentially the equivalent of meeting God. There's a very, very deep religious connotation to the experience that she has. And the other thing that she talks about is how these beings were imparting to her quite a few messages about uh, the Earth and humans' role in destroying Earth's resources. And, and, and yet that, for some reason, is not, um, is not what you experience, except for that one thing where you said the guy tells you as you're looking at the Earth out the window... The guy with the right. thing in the back of says, telling you, you know, it's a beautiful earth, you should take care of it. That's why I was originally asking earlier in the interview about your religious background, because I think that many people would say that Andreasen interpreted, perceived what she did with somewhat of a religious filter in between her and the experience, um, which, which you, you don't seem to, to have that same no, kind of perception. I, well, Betty Andreasen was a very religious woman right. and uh, one thinks that that clouded or had a great influence on her interpretation of everything that happened to her yeah. right right so David I'm curious about this because you've expressed that you didn't ask these creatures why they were doing this you didn't express a sense of uh, I, I know. I mean, it's interesting how at one point you're grieving that your baby is dead, but then there are all of these other hybrid beings you're saying were created with your genetic material, but you, you say you, you don't feel any sense of paternal concern or even ownership of those hybrid beings? Well, I, I remember I told you how I had gotten to the argument mm-hmm. with the insect being. Right. I wanted to stay because they're my kids. Right. But he said, you can visit them, but you cannot stay. And it was like we had come to some sort of agreement. 
But the only thing I do know is that every time I was there with them, I always made it a point to go to see the babies or the children. You hear it on TV, you hear it on radio, cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two G's, goldbug.com. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to David Huggins, featured in the book Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. And it's an extraordinary life, all the experiences he's reported with aliens. We have Jim Mosley, who some people call an alien, the editor and publisher of Saucer Smear. It's the first laugh I've brought this year to the show, probably the last. Okay, we are kind of getting to the wrap-up stage here. We only have... A short time left. David, looking back over all that's happened to you that is apparently still happening, what is your feeling about this? Do you feel these are E.T.? Do you feel they're from another dimension? Do you feel that maybe this is a race that coexists with our own? Do you have any feelings about that at all? I, I don't know where they're from. I mean, if they're interplanetary, they're interplanetary. If they're intergalactic or interdimensional or even right here from Earth, I don't know. I just know that they are. I have no idea where they're from. Uh, are you curious? I am curious, but I don't know. It's, they have never told me. You know, it hits me also. You seem to accept a lot of things without asking questions about this. And I remember the scene in the movie, the original Day the Earth Stood Still, not the travesty with Keanu Reeves. Oh, where oh okay where Sam Jaffe is playing the scientist, and he asks Klaatu, played by Michael Rennie, I have a million questions to ask you. And I'm thinking, placed in a like situation, I have a million questions. It sounds like you haven't asked those questions. No, I haven't. For some curious reason, I did not seem to have a questioning attitude. It seems like... When I was there, I was there for a specific reason. And for some reason, questions just did not come to mind. I, I don't know why. And when I think about it, it was like, well, I should have asked about this, whatever. 
but at the time they were going on, there were no questions. Sounds to me like maybe you were undergoing some mind control? I wouldn't be surprised. I, I would not be surprised. Well, now, you're, you're saying these experiences continue to this day mm -hmm. with less frequency, but you still don't feel like you have curiosity about why this has happened? You still don't feel like you're even entitled to an answer about why you've been undergoing this situation that that has affected your life? It, uh, we're not going to guess that it, it, it was the main reason that drove... Uh, your your marriage to, to end, but certainly sounds like it had a lot to do with it. I don't know, David. I mean, I, I think that if it, and you know, everybody obviously deals with the situation in a different way. If it were me, I would think after a lifetime of this, after this had had such an effect on your your primary relationship in this life with your with your wife, uh, I would have certainly. Um, questions. I mean, I, I would, I, I, and maybe they wouldn't answer them, but, you know, it's, it sounds to me like if what you're recounting is real, that you have sort of a unique opportunity, perhaps uh, some sort of an emotional affinity with this being where maybe you've earned the right to ask some questions. You don't, you don't think you have? I would say, yes, I do have the right. But if for some reason it seems like when I'm with them, questions don't questions are irrelevant. I don't know how to put it, Dave. It's just mm -hmm. the questions just never came up. I mean, they just never did. You know, it's, I just for, this know that it, it's for this kind of reason. I don't know how to put this. Yeah, you're absolutely right in in, in your question. Uh, yeah, anybody would be uh, expected uh, to ask questions. And the fact that that uh, David Huggins didn't, and and the fact that anybody like you or I would expect that he would ask questions. In other words, he's not uh, making up a story that is supposed to answer our questions uh, or uh, sound like sure. anybody else's story sure. is sure. unique in what he experiences and uh, that is one of the reasons that I take it very seriously. Oh, uh, you, you know, look, uh, it, it has a lot of similarities in many ways with other stories we've heard of. It has some striking similarities. I mean, the Andreas and description of the, the bird burning up and resulting in a worm, I mean, uh, that's awfully specific, and, and and it sounds like David had the exact same experience. So, uh, you know, uh, I think that's it. if there's no contamination of the two accounts into one another, which is why I was kind of looking for a timeline there. Then it's not a totally unique situation, uh, especially uh, uh, Jim, since David's mentioned that there were times that. Uh, the crescent being wasn't there. The little gray beings came and harvested semen. This makes me then uh, sort of wonder about if they can accomplish, and this is obviously a, a bigger meta question that deals with all of these abduction experiences, which is the idea that the most efficient way to harvest genetic material, to, to take it from a 
from a human being in that particular context, you know, I, there, there are clues and there are questions there that I think are really interesting. And I think to myself, well, why even if you can harvest the genetic material without the sexual dynamic, why even bring the sexual dynamic into play unless it has a reason? And I realize that I'm saying this without us having any grasp of method or motivation, really. I mean, we, we, can, we can guess at these things, but we don't know. But if David is, is, is relating to us, his accurate description of what he says he went through... Um, you know, when you're presented with a situation like that, it seems like you have to ask questions. Uh, well, unless, I mean, unless there's a mind the control. The only thing that the fact that he didn't, to that degree only, and in that way only, makes his situation unique. And I find it fascinating because of that. Hmm. Well, there is one thing, David. Yes. I think I mentioned to you about doing the, when I repaired that painting, Right. Where, uh, as I was repairing, uh, retouching up a painting, I was just thinking to myself, I wonder if they are using these bodies anymore. And this Wait. is a painting, and, and let's just recount to people who don't know about this conversation that, that, that you and I had on the phone. This, was a, this is a painting. At one point, there's a situation where you are shown, one of these beings shows you what looks like a gray body in what, what appears to be like a flat wrap package. Right, almost this like a shirt in a plastic yeah. bag. Yeah, and, and, and you're saying you touch this bag and like the eyes move and, and it reacts. Right. Yeah, go ahead. And I mean, it scared me, so I handed it back to him. But, but that was all it was. But he was showing me this. Now... Like I said, I was retouching this painting about two months ago or so. I noticed that it was damaged, and so I was retouching on it. And then I asked that kind of question, mainly maybe it was more to myself than to them. But I asked, I thought to myself, I wonder if they're using these bodies anymore. And then that night I am with the beings, and three or four, what I could only call young men, came over to me and one of them said David we have new bodies now mm -hmm. now when it comes to question I think really that's about the only question that I can honestly say that I ever asked but I did that while I was working in the painting mm -hmm. and so that was that I think what I would love to see in regard to whatever this phenomenon is is that someone should really look into the creative nature of this phenomenon. Every person, or most of every person I've ever met, who have been involved, whatever this is, has a very strong creative bent. And I think that it's something that should be looked into. But, as, but I think that was the only question I ever asked. Hmm. Or at least the only question that you were able to ask, as I said, right, if you were submitted to mind control and they just stole your senses to undergo these encounters, it wouldn't be possible for you I would not be surprised. I just know that I felt different whenever I was there. Mm -hmm. There was a certain immediacy about the experience, a, I don't know, a nowness, if you will. I mean, 
I mean, you are in the present. I mean, you are really in the present. You don't, the, the future does not exist. The past does not exist. Only what is going on right then and there. Right. Actually, David, I, I've dubbed that hyper-reality. It, it's almost like more real than real. Well, it was something like that. Yeah. It was just so intense. And but you you feel different. You I don't know what it is. I mean, the more I think about it, the more confused I get. That sounds like the entire UFO field. We only have yeah. a few minutes left, David. So from here on, what do you intend to do? Continue painting? Maybe have more experiences? Do you do anything other than paint for a job? Uh, I have a part 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 time job working in a deli. I used to be a graphic designer on Wall Street many years ago, but since they got into computers, I gave it up. So I put myself in a situation of working as little as possible in the outside work world and concentrating on the paintings. And it isn't just you doing these UFO paintings either. I do still lifes and uh, landscapes and portraits, but uh, I put myself into a situation where I make as little money as possible and have as much time as I can. Great life if you can do it. David yeah. Huggins, he's featured in the book called Love in an Alien Purgatory, the life and fantastic art of David Huggins from Anomalous Books. We have a link on our site. So if you click on the book, you could order a copy. And because it's an Amazon link, we get a couple of cents. And I mean a couple of cents. That's used to be you make money from having an Amazon affiliate relationship, no more. Jim Mosley, we know you're going to keep on keeping on. You have a chance again. Tell our listeners about Saucer Smear. Saucer Smear is available uh, from me, the editor, Jim Mosley, at uh, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. Write in and we'll send you a sample copy. Now, you have something called a non-subscription. Does that mean that you take donations to pay for this? Yes, uh, we take donations. We don't uh, specify how much it should be. Uh, and uh, one reason is that some people send far more than they have to, and we don't want to stop them from doing that. So we don't well, put a maximum. <laughs> we, we don't put a maximum or a minimum. They just send what they want. So if they want to send you a spare three or four million dollars, that's okay. Yeah, we wouldn't. We wouldn't try to stop them. No. Huh. Uh, we haven't had that problem uh, too often, uh, but we do have people that send like a hundred dollars a year for for a non-subscription, which is quite generous and. Uh, uh, we won't name who these people are. They're mostly in mental institutions, but uh, uh, there is <laughs> there is that tendency uh, of some people to do that. Yes, Jim, the non-address one more time. The uh, address here is Post Office Box One Seven O Nine, Key West. Two words: Key West, Florida. 33041. And thank you for the opportunity to uh, give out that information. And uh, I, I have to say, as a participant, I have enjoyed this show greatly. And I think uh, David Huggins uh, has presented himself excellently. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to be a part of this. 
Thank you so much for summing up. We don't have to sum up anymore on the show, do we, David? David Huckins, thank you. Jim Mosley, thank you both for joining us this week on the PowerCast. All right. Thank you very much for having me on. Thanks, guys. Uh Bye-bye. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.